Let us pray together. Open our eyes that we might see this day, O God. Open our ears that we might hear anew your words of life. Open our spirits that we might experience your unconditional love. And open our minds that we might deepen and broaden our understanding of what it means to be a follower of you. In the beautiful and eternal name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The great reformer Martin Luther used to call this chapter the gospel within the gospel. Luther used to say, if you want to know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about, study the 15th chapter of Luke. The question reverberating in the background of this passage, what is God like? What does God care about? Specifically, who does God care about? And secondarily, where do we fit in? It's the gospel within the gospel. It's also, if you notice the way Sylvia read, the way the story unfolds, it's actually a story within a story. There is a setting that's important to keep in mind as we remind ourselves of the three parables that Jesus tells in response to the situation he confronts. The setting is a group of religious leaders on one side of what we'll call simply the stage of this story. And on the other side of the stage is Jesus surrounded by a group of people that the religious leaders have sort of blithely labeled as sinners and tax collectors. Now, I know it's highly unusual for religious people to make generalizations about other people. But for the sake of the story, let's just sort of go with what Jesus is experiencing here. A group of religious folks are looking at this other group as not good enough, different than, categorized in a general fashion as sinners and tax collectors. Now, who were these people? Well, probably a lot of them looked a lot like you and me and lots of other people in our society who people are tempted to just sort of compartmentalize into that broad category of other. Not like us. So the story within the story, the setting, the religious hierarchy has labeled a group of folks who, by the way, have been highly attracted to Jesus. And they're spending time with him, and he is spending time with them. And 
Luke makes the point as the story is set up to point out the fact that there is this group of religious leaders not just concerned about who Jesus is spending time with, sinners and tax collectors, but he is also doing something else. Did you catch the wording? They're grumbling and mumbling, Luke says, because Jesus is surrounded by spending time with sinners and tax collectors, and there's this final little phrase, and he even eats with them. Now, Decatur, some of you have figured out, has lots of really cool restaurants. There are a lot of people around here who spend a lot of time eating. Now, who do you eat with? Well, especially if you're going to spend money doing it, you want to eat with people that you're comfortable with, people that you don't have to put on airs with, people that you want to get to know better, people that you like. Well, in Jesus' day, there was that same dynamic, but it was also tinged with this interesting aspect of folks noticed eating was special, especially in Jewish society. There was this idea that when you ate, something happened. Eating food specifically, it kept you from dying. People in those days were very familiar with famine. They knew how important food was and how scary it was when food was scarce. So eating, the, the possibility of dining with other people was a sacred encounter that you didn't just do with anybody. It was considered a holy experience where you literally are sharing life-giving substance together. So the religious leaders are very critical of what Jesus is doing. Not only is he allowing himself to spend time with folks that are compartmentalized, categorized as unworthy, but he's sharing sacred moments of food with them. This is very controversial. And Jesus overhears what these religious commentators are saying. So the response is interesting. Instead of Jesus turning around and arguing with them, what does he do? He does what is the perfect rabbinical tradition. He tells a series of stories. And the first story is about a shepherd and sheep. This shepherd oversees a flock of 100 sheep. One of them wanders away. Now, sheep are not known to be overly bright. It's not the fault of this sheep. The grass was a little greener. For whatever reason, the sheep wandered off. He wasn't bad. He was just distracted, which is also not that surprising. And the shepherd recognizes something is wrong. He periodically is counting his sheep, and he notices one sheep is missing. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. The way Jesus tells it, it's very important to note that these sheep, the 99, are not safely in what would be called the fold or a sheltered area where they were protected. They were still out in the wilderness. They were susceptible to wild animals. They were susceptible also to going off and wandering away. But what is it the shepherd does? He leaves them, Jesus says, in the wilderness. 
and chases after, searches for, looks diligently for the lost sheep. Fred Craddock at Candler School of the, uh, Theology, um, back when he was homiletics professor, used to call this the risky love of God. So concerned and focused on that little one sheep that all the 99 are put at risk to find the one. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, he puts him on his shoulders, rushes back to the community, calls all his friends together and says, rejoice with me, an operative word, joy. Rejoice with me and celebrate because the sheep that I thought was gone, the sheep that I thought I'd lost, I found. And then Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven when but one of these sinners repents and returns. Now notice in this, as well as the next section, Jesus uses the word, the Greek word, metanoia, repents, and returns to the fold. The key vision is this shepherd actively searching, looking. The sheep didn't do anything but get lost. It was the shepherd that did all the work and brought back and celebrated and rejoiced. And then Jesus says, it's also like, now keep in mind in the first parable, God is like a shepherd. In the second parable, God is like a woman. Some of you had already figured that out. But for the rest of us in this parable, this woman, Jesus says, has only 10 coins. She had no visible means of income. There's nothing said about family or husband or support. It's likely these 10 coins are all that she has to carry her through the rest of her life, and one of them is lost. And Jesus says, it's this kind of desperate situation where wouldn't she clear out the whole house, sweep away all the hay that would have been there for for animals, move everything, search and search diligently until she finds that one lost coin, 10% of everything she had. When she finds it, she rejoices and calls together the community, neighbors, everybody, come together, celebrate, rejoice with me. The coin that I lost has been found. Jesus says in the same way, I tell you, it's like this, In the kingdom of heaven, God brings together the angels and there's a party. If just one of these sinners, the people that you categorize in a general way as nobodies, others, unwanted, repents and is a part of the family. Now Jesus tells a story from one out of a hundred, then one out of ten. Now it becomes one out of two. Jesus says, there once was a father who had not one, but two sons. The younger of the sons says to his father, Father, I would like my inheritance early. Kenneth Bailey is a famous commentator. He lived in the Middle East for over 40 years, studied throughout Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Turkey, and in all of those uh, social arenas of the Middle East, he would ask families and Arab Christians about this story. 
And their response inevitably was the same. This would never happen. No younger son would be so insolent as to say to his father, your stuff is more important to me than you are. Give me your stuff now because I can't wait for you to die. I'd like to be able to get my inheritance now. This impossible to imagine scenario unfolds. Now, other commentators also make the point that there's something that Jesus' audience would have known and we need to know as well. We'll talk more about it next week in part two of this same parable. The older son had a responsibility in the family to keep the peace. The older son was supposed to be the arbitrator between family members and should have, in this case, gone to the younger son and said, what are you doing? What are you thinking? This is not what we do. But notice, not only is the older son silent, but he allows the father, listen, to divide the inheritance between them. The older son and the younger son. The older son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets one-third. The younger son takes his one-third of the property. He converts it to cash, which means he has to sell family land. He takes that cash and uses, uses it to finance a trip to a faraway place. While he's there, he does all kinds of what Luke calls dissolute living. As he is making his way through his cash, he realizes he's got to get some means of living because he's about to be bankrupt. So he gets a job with a Gentile family. This is a Jewish young man. And where does he end up working? Feeding pigs. This is not the kind of thing most Jewish parents hope for, for their children. And then there's a family in the land, a famine in the land. We don't know how long this scene unfolds, but it's long enough for there to be no rain and for crops to fail. For food to run out. And this young man begins to starve and he sees what he's feeding the pigs and he says what the pigs have is better than what I have and then he reflects my father's hired hands his slaves even eat better than I'm eating and then Luke says in a very important wording he came to himself now remember we said in the first two parables Jesus very specifically uses the word metanoia, repentance. It's important to notice in this parable, the word metanoia is never used. When Luke says, and he came to himself, remember the cartoons where there was a light bulb over a person's head? That doesn't mean they repented. What does it mean? I've got an idea. A better translation is, I know what I'll do. I will say to my father, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands, because, he's thinking to himself, hired hands eat better than I am, and hired hands don't have to live in the house of the family. They get paid for what they do, and they can live separately. Kenneth Bailey says this is a key phrase in this wording. Jesus gives us several hints. First, the lack of the word repent. Second, the fact that he wants to be a hired hand and live separately from the family. And third, and most importantly, the speech that he writes is specifically constructed the way Jesus tells it as a quote. And the quote comes from one of our favorite characters that will be coming on television in the Ten Commandments in a few weeks, interacting with Charlton Heston, known as the Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, it comes after the eighth plague. Now, just to get the scene straight, in this Egyptian scenario, there have been all these plagues, specifically frogs, gnats, flies. I spent five years in the sand hills in Rockingham, North Carolina. Gnats are no fun. And I'm telling you, after a few months of gnats, you're ready to just say, Lord, it's been a good life. Just take me on up. But then you add flies and frogs and Pharaoh, after eight rounds of this, the thing that put Pharaoh over the edge was not the gnats or the flies or the frogs. It was the grasshoppers. Locust. It's the eighth plague. Locusts come through. They eat everything. And Pharaoh goes to Aaron and Moses. And he says, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Now, why would Jesus quote Pharaoh in this young man's mouth when he's writing his speech to the Father? Any ideas? How many of you grew up with good-hearted, well-meaning preachers telling you that this young man in the far-off land repented and came back home with a changed heart. Anybody? Some of you didn't go to church as kids, so that's okay. But the rest of you, you heard this story, and somebody along the way said, he repented, and this is beautiful. No, it's not beautiful. He doesn't repent. He's play-acting. And I said it in Fresh Start, and I guess to be fair, I'm going to say it here. Pardon my language. He started as a jerk, and he's still a jerk. He has not repented. There's no change of heart. There is an empty stomach. What's motivating him is not humility, but hunger. He is coming back to his dad, the same kid he was when he left. And here's what's crazy. I bet his dad knows it. So he's writing a speech where he quotes Pharaoh. He doesn't mean a word of it. He wants to live separately when he gets back so he can get regular income and live separately and fill his stomach. And it's a tragic scene. And the father's response, now here's this interesting 
thing. We don't know how long this scene spread out. Jesus, in the brilliance of his storytelling, carefully edits this so that we can use our imaginations, but it was long enough for seasons to change and famine to occur. And where is the father during all this time? He's still standing at the front gate, looking out, waiting for this kid, this messed up, crazy kid. And the way the story unfolds, the way Jesus tells it, while he was still far off, the father has this deep sense of gut-riching love known as compassion. Now, Aristotle has a word here. So you can tell folks in your circles that this Sunday we talked about a Greek philosopher. Aristotle, years ago, in the 4th century B.C., said, wise elder men never run. Why? Because in Greece, just like in Palestine, you're wearing robes and sandals, and it just doesn't look cool. There's no elegance in running with robes and sandals. It just looks like your life is messed up. You're supposed to walk coolly, confidently, with your head up, your shoulders back, looking at the world like you don't really care. But this father cares. Because Jesus says, not only did he feel compassion, but now he runs. There are only about three places in the Bible this happens. When Esau sees Jacob and he runs. When Peter and John hear about the resurrection and they run. But these are young men. Doesn't matter what young men look like. They can look stupid. But for older, more dignified men, you just don't run unless you don't care what people think anymore. What you care about this father, I'm sure, is thinking is my son is home, but there's another element in the story, and it comes probably from this sense of Leviticus in the ancient law of Israel. As far as we know, it was never used, but there was a Levitical perspective to try to keep kids from doing what this kid did to his family. It was overarching this idea that if a wayward child makes a community ashamed, turns his back on his family, it is within Levitical law called for that child, get this, deserves to be stoned. It may be that the father, both in his compassion and enthusiasm, is running to meet his son, but then watch what happens. He embraces him, hugs him, and kisses him, partly because he's in love with his son. He's glad he's home. It also may be out of bodily protection so that nobody hurts him. Now, this is a no-good kid. He has not repented, and the chances are the father knows he's not repented. And yet, 
The Father loves him still. What is Jesus saying? Remember, remember the setting, the story within the story. There's a group of religious folks who are looking at other folks, pointing fingers, saying, you're not good enough. You've not repented enough. What is Jesus saying? And the other looming question over this incredibly rich parable, did the younger son get it? Did he repent? What happened? Which is why you have to come next week and find out part two. And remember, they're not There's not just one son. There are two sons. And we miss the power of Jesus' teaching if we only focus on one wayward son. Because there are two. And we will talk about both next week. What is clear, what Jesus makes very certain, is that you can make assumptions about people. You can point fingers and compartmentalize and categorize and generalize all you want. But that's not what God does. And that's what we should be open to. Brothers and sisters, the wonderful grace of Jesus is broader than we can understand, bigger than we can fathom, and we have an opportunity to sing together this great song, the wonderful grace of Jesus as our hymn of response. I invite you to join with me as we stand and join hearts, minds, and voices. Sing with enthusiasm, and if God has touched you in these moments, we pray that you come forward and allow us to celebrate together. Let's stand as we join our voices.